I'm John Murren in Early American History at Princeton. I, I'd like to introduce our next speaker. I, she grew up in St. Paul while I grew up across the river in Minneapolis, which means that uh, since the rivalry between the two cities was sometimes quite fierce, maybe we should be uh, enemies. But she's always laughed at my anecdotes, and I think that that made a big difference. All right, she's gone, you know, we met over 30 years ago uh, in the 60s in Cambridge, uh, and uh, uh, she's gone on to have a distinguished career. She's now the uh, William Rand Kennan Jr. Professor of American History at MIT. Uh, she's the author of three books and lots of other things, uh, and all of them have been uh, quite influential. Uh, the one I keep assigning to undergraduates is her first, From Resistance to Revolution, which is a study really of how British rule uh, became delegitimated in America uh, in the 1760s down to 1776. Uh, she followed that with Old Revolutionaries, uh, which is a series of essays on different people like Samuel Adams and Dr. Thomas Young and Isaac Sears and uh, Charles Carroll of Carrollton and the Bartlett's of New Hampshire, husband and wife. Uh, Mary John Bartlett? I've forgotten his first name. Well, anyway, uh, and uh, I, I think uh, her essays on Samuel Adams are the best interpretation of Samuel Adams anybody has ever provided. Uh, she really makes sense of his life. And finally, she uh, fairly recently put out American Scripture, which is a study of the Declaration of Independence. It has many virtues. Uh, the chapter I like best is the one uh, on the other Declarations of Independence. There are about 90 of them that she found prior to July 4th, uh, either local communities, sometimes a whole colony. Uh, but uh, what are they saying? And uh, what arguments do they make for American independence? Uh, one of the single most interesting findings in the book is that very few of them thought there was any need to go back before the 19th of April, 1775, uh, to justify independence. It was the king's decision to wage war on his American subjects, which, which is the ultimate factor in delegitimating British rule in America. So Pauline's gonna, uh, Pauline Mayer is going to speak to us on the states and the nation, uh, James Madison and American federalism. Thank you. Uh, John Murren is indeed an old friend, and uh, I suppose the old Minnesota bond has always been uh, a particularly strong one. Uh, I think I know John, or things about John, however, that aren't commonly known even to Princeton alumni. I doubt many of you know about his heroic effort as a child to save the Fauché Tower, a Minneapolis landmark, from Nazi bombers. <laughs> it has struck me that historians are very often uh, called upon to explain the relevance of their discipline, particularly by people who think it's perfectly irrelevant. I, or as, as that awful phrase goes, history is history. Uh, it has also struck me, however, that these hostile questioners often fall silent when they discover they are confronted by a historian who studies the American Revolution, or particularly one who studies the Constitution. The way that document evolved, the purposes that explain particular institutions, or the arrangement of the whole, even the 18th century understanding of specific phrases high crimes and misdemeanors comes to mind, uh, are of continuing importance since they help make sense of the government which we still live under. I would uh, submit, however, what's probably clear to everyone that history isn't uniformly helpful in making sense of controversial uh, issues having to do with the Constitution. We sometimes confront issues that never crossed the founders' minds. Gay rights, for example, there we're on our own. In another uh, category of cases, the founders adopted an institution on assumptions that subsequently proved incorrect. In the spirit of the 18th century, we should then reopen the issue courageously and make appropriate repairs, which we have sometimes done the Twelfth Amendment, which adapted the election of the president to the unanticipated development of political parties, and sometimes, 
I should say very often, failed to do the Electoral College. But there remains a third category of issues that inspired protracted reflection among the founders and on which they arrived at a profound and satisfying understanding that became orthodox for several generations of their descendants. But sometimes those sophisticated insights seem to elude us. The best example of that is the subject of my talk, the relationship of states and nation within the American Republic. Uh, the issue came up recently in Alden v. Maine, a 1999 case in which the Supreme Court decided that a Maine probation officer could not sue the state of Maine for violating overtime provisions of the Fair Labor, Labor Standards Act of 1938. States were not subject to suits by their own citizens without their consent, the court decided, because immunity from suit was a fundamental aspect of the sovereignty that the states enjoyed before ratification of the Constitution and which they retain today, except as altered by the plan of the convention or certain constitutional amendments. And I will say, until this week, the constitutional amendment that seemed to be the clearest example of a case that inhibited or, or limited state immunity from prosecution was the 14th Amendment, but that is history. <laughs> In short, the court asserted that the states as governments remain sovereign and that their sovereignty brought an immunity from prosecution under acts of Congress, even if those acts implemented powers granted by the Constitution. Two days ago, the court expanded that immunity, which I was talking about a second ago. In, boss, in Board of Trustees of the University of Alabama v. Garrett, it freed states from damage suits under the Americans with Disabilities Acts of 1990. Uh, it's not my topic, and it's not my intention to discuss either case in detail here, except I do want to say that Alden v. Maine, which included an extensive historical argument uh, for sovereign immunity, inspired my choice of topic. I think Jack Rakoff was right when he described Madison in, his, in Jack's little biography as the New Republic's most powerful and probing intellect. He was also a man who grappled with the character of the Americans' compound republic, as he called it, from the 1780s on until his death in 1836. How, I wondered, could his views on the relationship of states to the nation and the location of sovereignty within the American Republic be anything but instructive? I assumed when I volunteered the topic, all too casually it turned out, that Madison's thought on American federalism developed over time, and my task would be simply to trace the evolution of his thinking and then to describe his considered conclusions. But as I read studies that have been published since I last worked on Madison at the time of the Constitutional Bicentennial, uh, including a set of really first-rate books by Jack Rakoff, Lance Banning, and Drew McCoy, and as I looked more closely at Madison's writings over a long period of time, I came to doubt that assumption. In other words, I confronted the consistency issue, which I gathered Gordon Wood raised last night. I had flattered myself, Madison wrote a correspondent in 1832, some 81 years after his birth, that I was as little chargeable with inconsistencies as any of my fellow laborers through so long a period of life. In the end, he convinced me of his essential consistency, at least from the time of the ratification controversy on. To be sure, the controversies that inspired his reflections required different emphases and sometimes inspired a more forceful statement of what remained latent in earlier writings. There's no doubt, moreover, that he learned from his experiences and observations, but as Madison, Madison himself put it, a change of opinions under the lights of experience and the results of improved reflection is hardly cause for censure. I propose, in short, to describe uh, the history of, of sovereignty, 
Uh, look carefully on, at Madison's pronounce, uh, pronouncements on the relationship of the states and nation, which always raised the nagging question of where sovereignty lay. Uh, but, but without getting into too much detail on the controversies that, pro that, pro that provoked them. And then finally, to return uh, better informed to Alden v. Maine and this week's decision as well. I have to say, as you will uh, gather at the end, I'm not altogether fond of, uh, of, of these two decisions and a whole series of related ones that have been made by the Supreme Court, but nonetheless, I'm profoundly grateful uh, even to the majority, I like the minority of the Supreme Court. Uh, <laughs> I, when I volunteered this topic, it seemed like a good idea. And when I actually sat down to write it, I said to myself, you had to have been out of your mind. Uh, on this celebratory occasion, you propose to present a learned discourse on what must be the most mind-boggling concept in the history of American politics. And I didn't even know that I'd be doing it after the audience was invited to go through the serpentine course of American diplomacy in the early republic. Uh, it was sort of, you know, one hard issue after another. Uh, but the court, I think, bailed me out. And how was I to know what would be in New York Times yesterday morning? Uh, I, am, I say to myself that Princeton alumni couldn't be any dumber than MIT students. And over and over, I, uh, I think you can understand this one. And I would propose beyond that that it's worth the effort that this question of sovereignty, its meaning over time, its meaning as the court is using it, is extraordinarily important to us. And you must get your head around it, and I'm going to try to help. I, I also want to ask the indulgence of uh, some of the leading scholars who are here. As I speak, they're going to say, I wrote that already. Uh, <laughs> And uh, to them I say, gentlemen, I have learned from you. And beyond that, when I myself visited the sources, I found your arguments confirmed. So when you hear me saying things which you have already said, you should accept it as a testament to the solidity of your scholarship. <laughs> The place to start is not with Madison, but with the concept of sovereignty, an abstraction, an intellectual invention that complicated discussions of American federalism in the founding era and has the exact same effect today. The modern concept of sovereignty goes back to the 16th century French theorist Jean Baudin. Anxious to define the basis of order in a society divided into different social orders, provinces, communities, corporations, and, above all, religions, Baudin found his answer in the existence somewhere within the state of a single sovereign power to which all other entities were necessarily subordinate. Sovereign power, he insisted, had to be single and indivisible, perpetual and absolute, that is, free of all limitations and of any subjection. Baudin loaded that, uh, located that sovereign authority in the king. Although the need for some sovereign authority within a state became something of a political truism in Britain as well as in continental Europe, its locus was open to debate. During the divisions that racked 17th century England, different pamphleteers claimed sovereignty for the king, the two houses of parliament, the commons alone, the law, even the people. In the end, with the revolution of 1688-89, the British settled on an answer. Sovereignty lay in the king in parliament. That is, in the king acting in conjunction with the lords and commons. That distribution of sovereignty among king, lords, and commons supposedly prevented abusive extensions of power by any one of the three, and so protected English liberty. 
Parliamentary sovereignty therefore became a constitutional principle in 18th century Britain, but it wasn't exactly popular among American colonists of the 1760s and 1770s. If Parliament was sovereign, it could act as it chose without restriction, and so could bind the colonists in all cases whatsoever as the Declaratory Act of 1766 asserted. There was no midway, no saying this far and no further. Sovereignty was by definition unlimited and indivisible. As a result, there was, as Lieutenant Governor Thomas Hutchinson told the Massachusetts General Court in 1773, no line that can be drawn between the supreme authority of Parliament and the total independence of the colonies. Well, if that's the choice, the colonists could only choose independence, since to them, unlimited authority was tyranny. As Madison later put it, the assertion by Great Britain of a power to make laws for the other members of the empire in all cases whatsoever ended in the discovery that she had a right to make laws for them in no cases whatsoever. The Americans nonetheless continued to accept the old idea that every form of government needed to have somewhere a supreme, irresistible, absolute, uncontrolled authority in which the rights of sovereignty reside, and that that authority was indivisible. The function of sovereignty was to assure order, and order was a pressing issue in a new nation that had no king to command obedience, and in which the willingness of the people both to rule and to be ruled remained unproven. But where could such indivisible ultimate authority be safely placed in a free republic? Uh, the conventional answer, and probably I found myself repeating it once upon a time until I thought about it, is that with independence, sovereignty passed to the separate states. That's what the court's been saying. But in fact, the sovereignty of the states between 1776 and the ratification of the Constitution in 1788 is now and was always open to very serious question. The colonies formed states with written constitutions only under the direction of the Continental Congress. And from at least 1775, the Congress had acknowledged responsibility over foreign affairs and several other tasks that are normally characteristic of a sovereign nation. The Articles of Confederation, which were ratified only in 1781, almost five years after the Declaration of Independence, said that each state retains its sovereignty, freedom, and independence, and every power, jurisdiction, and right which is not by this confederation expressly delegated to the United States in Congress assembled. But that was quite a reservation. The powers the articles assigned to the United States in Congress assembled were substantial. It had, for example, the sole and exclusive right and power of determining on peace and war, of sending and receiving ambassadors, and of entering into treaties and alliances. Could the several states be sovereign if they were subject to such profound limits on their authority? During debates in the Constitutional Convention of 1787, Rufus King of Massachusetts said, no, the states under the Confederation are not sovereign states, he argued, because they lack the critical powers of war and peace. The Articles of Confederation even limited their exercise of power domestically by giving Congress the power to regulate the value of both state and federal coinage, for example. Madison agreed with King. The states never possessed the essential rights of sovereignty, he said. These were always vested in Congress. The states were only great corporations having the power of making bylaws 
and even there only if they are not contradictory to the general confederation. But since the Confederation Congress was unable to enforce its rights under the Articles, the states acted as if they were free from all constraint. In a memo composed in April of 1787, which I gather Jack Rakoff went through in some detail uh, this morning, Madison cited misconduct on the part of the states uh, as a leading vices of the American political system. They'd refused to comply with requisitions. They'd encroached on federal authority. They had violated the rights of other states and the rights of nation. They passed laws all the time, and often they were unjust, and then they just repealed them and passed another one equally bad. Uh, these were big problems, he said, and the only way to remedy these vices was a modification of sovereignty, and he favored investing more effective and extensive power in a well-structured central government to which the states would be clearly subordinate. It was absolutely necessary, he wrote Washington in mid-April 1787, that the national legislature have a negative, that is a veto, in all cases whatsoever, on the legislative acts of the states, as heretofore exercised by the kingly prerogative, a conviction he retained even after the convention rejected the proposal. He also advocated giving Congress power, as the Virginia, plans, Virginia plan said, to call forth the force of the Union against any member of the Union failing to fulfill its duty uh, under the Constitution though he willingly abandoned that provision once he realized it essentially uh, would have uh, institutionalized civil war. Uh, not a good thing. Uh, Madison wanted seats in both houses of Congress to be allocated in proportion either to the state's free population or the amount of tax revenue they generated. Uh, he surely didn't want them to have equal representation in the Senate although he denied that equal state representation in the old Confederation Congress implied that, as sovereign powers, the states were equal to each other. The state of Maryland voted by counties, he noted. Did this make the county sovereign? Over the several months in which it met, the federal convention extended and revised the Virginia plan adopting provisions sometimes with firm convictions of their wisdom and sometimes more tentatively and sometimes simply from a need to compromise contrary positions that would otherwise scuttle the whole effort to create a more perfect union. The net result was far from the coherent vision Madison had brought to the convention and he left that meeting unconvinced that the Constitution could either effectively answer its national object or prevent the local mischiefs which everywhere excite disgusts against state governments. But taking Franklin's advice to doubt a little of his own fallibility and like Franklin, conscious that no better Constitution was likely to be proposed, he threw his efforts wholeheartedly, as we all know, into getting the Constitution ratified. No doubt Madison's thinking matured in the course of the convention, and also, as Lance Banning argues, while writing his contributions to the Federalist Papers, in which he struggled both to justify and to make intellectual sense of a plan of government that was, as he said, neither a national nor a federal constitution, but a composition of both. The positions he took there in essays written and published with extraordinary haste were enduring. Four decades later, Madison could still cite his Federalist essays as statements of his views which I think confirms his claim for long-term consistency. But it wasn't Madison, but his colleague, uh, the Pennsylvanian James Wilson, who explained most clearly the location of sovereignty in the new American compound republic. He did so in answering anti-federalists in the Pennsylvania ratifying convention who had accused the Constitution of creating a consolidated government, one of those anti-federalist buzz, buzz terms, 
uh, who, uh, consolidated government whose powers would overwhelm and destroy the sovereignty of the separate states. Wilson did that essentially by denying that the state governments had any sovereignty to lose. In all governments, whatever their form, however they may be constituted, Wilson said, repeating the standard wisdom, there must be a power established from which there is no appeal, which is therefore called absolute, supreme, and uncontrollable. The only question is, where is that power lodged? Within the American Republic, he argued, supreme power lay in no institution or set of institutions, but in the people whose power was paramount to every constitution, inalienable in its nature, and indefinite in its extent. The people, the source of all power, could distribute one portion of power to the more contracted circle called state governments. This is, these are Wilson's words. They can also furnish another portion to the government of the United States. But the people, quote, never part with the whole. They retain the right of, re and they retain the right of recalling what they part with. A sovereignty remained, therefore, undivided. And beyond the people, there could be no appeal. Such sovereign power did not reside in the states as governments. Uh, since such sovereign power did not reside in the states as governments, they had no sovereignty to lose under the Constitution. Sovereignty resided, Wilson repeated, in one speech after another at the Pennsylvania Ratifying Convention, in the people who remained sovereign even after delegating power in such proportions to such bodies on such terms and under such limitations as they think proper. Wilson's conception of the proposed Constitution, I think, to use a rather more uh, immediately comprehensible analogy, was like that of a household in which a woman might hire, oh, a maid or, say, a cook and a gardener and give them separate defined responsibilities without compromising in the least her superior authority over them. Wilson's argument built on a century and more of British Whig thought that had affirmed the popular foundations of political authority and upon the Americans' emergent understanding of constitutions as direct acts of legislation by the people who exercised their sovereign powers through specially elected conventions coming from similar intellectual and constitutional experiences, Madison offered suggestions of the same conception in his Federalist Papers. In number 39, for example, he emphasized that the Constitution would be founded on the assent and ratification of the people of America, given by deputies elected for that specific purpose within the distinct and independent states to which they respectfully, respectively belong. It's an act dependent, therefore, not upon the decision of a majority of the people of the Union, nor from that of a majority of the states, but upon the assent of the supreme authority in each state, the authority of the people themselves. Since each state in ratifying the Constitution is considered, he wrote, a sovereign body independent of all others, and only to be bound by its own voluntary act, the new Constitution would be, in that regard, federal, not national. On the other hand, it would be national in that its authority would be enforced on individuals, not states. Under the Constitution, he added, the jurisdiction of the central government extends to certain enumerated objects only and leaves to the several states a residuary and inviolable sovereignty over all other objects. Later, he referred to the state's extensive portion of active sovereignty, apparently distinguishing, at least that's how I read it, the implementation of powers delegated by the people, i.e. active sovereignty, from what Wilson had identified as the people's fundamental sovereign powers. But Madison's argument in Federalist 39 was not the same as Wilson's. 
Uh, both men were responding to charges that the Constitution created a consolidated government, but Madison did that not by focusing on the location of sovereignty, but by demonstrating that the Constitution had federal as well as national components. In fact, I think Madison's clearest statement on this issue is not in the Federalist Papers at all. It came uh, a decade or 11 years later uh, in a report that he wrote for the Virginia legislature to answer criticisms of the uh, Virginia resolutions of 1798, which had been passed against the Alien and Sedition Acts. Actually, Madison had written those resolutions, so defending them was no doubt very dear to his heart. Uh, on the surface of them, uh, on a quick reading, you might think those resolutions claimed uh, that the states, uh, uh, state legislatures to be more precise, had power to judge the constitutionality of congressional acts. Uh, they said, for, uh, and this is the really critical passage, in case of a deliberate, palpable, and dangerous exercise of powers not granted to the federal government under the Constitution, the states who are parties thereto have the right and are in duty bound to interpose for arresting the progress of evil and for maintaining within their respective limits the authorities, rights, and liberties appertaining to them. Virginia sent its resolutions to other state legislatures uh, confident, as they said, that they will agree and concur in declaring that the Alien and Sedition Acts were unconstitutional and that the necessary and proper measures will be taken uh, by each for cooperating with Virginia in maintaining unimpaired the authorities, rights, and liberties reserved to the states respectively or to the people. Uh, they were, they misjudged the situation rather badly because those states that responded were uh, anything but uh, ready to concur uh, on the Virginia uh, resolutions. Uh, I, some of them just dismissed them out of hand. Uh, they're, they're almost comic. The, the Delaware House of Representatives pronounced the Virginia resolutions a very unjustifiable interference with the general government and constituted authorities of the United States and of such a dangerous tendency that they were not fit subjects for further consideration. <laughs> Other states, uh, several other, in fact, said that, uh, no, no, this isn't the job of the states. The Supreme Court is supposed to decide issues of constitutionality. Uh, and in fact, there is some very interesting evidence that Madison himself, uh, really not too long after the resolutions were passed, had some reservations about them, or more precisely, about having the legislature pass those resolutions. Have you ever considered thoroughly the distinction between the power of the state and that of the legislature on questions relating to the federal pact? He asked Thomas Jefferson on December 29, 1798. That's just a week after the Virginia legislature had passed its resolutions. On the supposition that the former is clearly the ultimate judge of infractions, it does not follow that the latter is the legitimate organ, especially as a convention was the organ by which the compact was made. Uh, from that insight came both a way of justifying, or if you like, explaining away the Virginia resolutions and a powerful restatement and extension of James Wilson's pronouncement on sovereignty in the American Republic. How, to begin with, could Madison explain the Virginia Resolution statement that the states are parties to the Constitution? The word states, he said, has several very different meanings, and we confuse them with each other, but we shouldn't. It sometimes refers to territories occupied by particular political societies, the land, so to speak. On other occasions, it refers to the particular governments established by the, those societies, or alternatively, to the societies organized into those particular governments. Finally, the word can refer to, quote, the people composing those political societies in their highest sovereign capacity. 
only in that sense were the states sovereign, since in the United States the people, not the government, possess the absolute sovereignty. And since states as communities of sovereign people were parties to the Constitution, they were of necessity the rightful judges in the last resort, whether the bargain has been pursued or violated. Those who said the Supreme Court had exclusive jurisdiction over constitutional issues ignored a very important fact, Madison said, the fact that the judicial department also may exercise or sanction dangerous powers beyond the grant of the Constitution. And for that reason, the sovereign people's right to judge violations of the Constitution must extend to violations by one delegated authority as well as by another, by the judiciary as well as by the executive or the legislative. The people were not, however, to exercise that power hastily or on occasions that were of a light and transient nature or obscure and doubtful in construction, but only against, as the resolution said, a deliberate, palpable, and dangerous exercise of unconstitutional powers. In this instance, the Virginia legislature called on the states only to interpose for the arresting the progress of the evil. The legislature, moreover, was emphatically not the people in their highest sovereign capacity. The people exercise their sovereign capacity only through specially elected conventions, and a legislature isn't a convention. All the legislature had done was to appeal to fellow state governments, which were intermediate between the sovereign people and the general government, and to ask their, these other states to join in a protest against the unconstitutional acts of Congress, which is, of course, a perfectly normal thing to do. The legislature had not even suggested to its sister states what further measures might be necessary and proper, such as petitioning Congress to rescind the objectionable laws. So what, in short, was all the fuss about? It was a terrific save, as they say in the sports world. Unfortunately, those who later looked back with favor on the Virginia resolutions, as well as the less restrained uh, uh, Kentucky resolutions that Jefferson drafted, turned out to be more troubling to Madison than the resolution's critics. The poor man spent the last decade of his life denying that the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions provided a precedent for state nullification of federal laws, as John C. Calhoun and the South Carolinians insisted. On one point after another, he insisted in a torrent of letters and essays, those two actions were different. Virginians had protested clearly unconstitutional violations of freedom of speech and the press, of rights that lay at the foundation of a free society, not anything so clearly within Congress's delegated power as a tariff law that favored manufacturers. Nor did the Virginia Resolution suggest that a single state could interpose in its sovereign capacity to block enforcement of an act of Congress. Instead, they referred repeatedly to states in the plural, since opposition demanded cooperation among several states who were parties to the Constitutional Compact. Virginia, moreover, endorsed extreme measures only in the last resort. After all, alternatives had failed. And by the 1830s, Madison had substantial confidence in the capacity of American institutions to solve their own problems, much more confidence than he had had three decades earlier. Maybe uh, a period in the White House didn't hurt. Uh, <laughs> but this goes beyond that. The threat posed by the Alien and Sedition Acts had been put down through the ballot box, he noted. And the Supreme Court now seemed a suitable arbiter or umpire in deciding questions concerning the boundaries of right and power. The day had passed when sitting judges indulged in intemperate party harangues. And the Supreme Court was no longer uh, a solid Federalist enclave 
as it had been at the time of the Virginia resolutions. Although occasional decisions from the bench had incurred serious and extensive disapprobation, Madison was ready to conclude in 1830 that with but few exceptions, the course of the judiciary had been hitherto sustained by the predominant sense of the nation. In that affirmation of the judiciary, he looked back past the report of 1800 to his original affirmation in Federalist 39 of the court's role as arbiter of ju jurisdictional disputes between the states and the nation. Some defenders of nullification suppose that the state governments were parties to the constitutional compact. That, Madison insisted, was a fundamental error. I wonder what he'd say about Alden B. Maine. Well, I'll get to that. <laughs> the real parties to the constitutional compact of the U.S. are the states, that is, the people thereof, respectively, and their sovereign character, and they alone. As he recalled, the resolutions of 1798 and the Virginia Report of 1800 declared, since the Constitution is a compact among the states in their highest sovereign capacity and constituting the people thereof, uh, one people for what certain purposes, it is not revocable or alterable at the will of the states individually. In ratifying the Constitution, the people of the various states had made themselves collectively one people for certain purposes, which meant the Constitution and laws passed by Congress under its authority could not be altered or uh, annulled at the will of the states individually as the Constitution of a state may be. The nullifiers were guilty of a colossal heresy, one that promised to make the majority hostage to a minority, and so to upset the entire constitutional order. Of course, in the ultima ratio, uh, which when, when deprived of rights essential to safety and happiness, individuals could exercise their right of revolution and shake off the yoke of oppression. But in controversies between the states and the general government, as he kept referring to the nation, the awful consequences of a final rupture and dissolution of the Union should never for a moment be lost sight of. Once the Union was dissolved, the impossible, impossibility of ever renewing it was brought home to every mind by the difficulties encountered in establishing it. The happy union of these states is a wonder, he wrote. Their constitution, a miracle. Their example, the hope of liberty throughout the world. Woe to the ambition that would meditate the destruction of either. By the 1830s, the principle that sovereignty lay not in state governments but in the people of a state was widely accepted not only by nationalists like Madison, but radical Jeffersonians, such as Virginia St. George Tucker. South Carolinians passed their nullification ordinance in a specially elected convention of the people. And some 30 years later, it would again be conventions of the sovereign people, not state legislatures, that adopted the South's ordinances of secession. The prospect of disunion had filled Madison with fear. Was he perhaps witnessing a logical outcome of Wilson's argument made some 40 years earlier that the people never part with the whole of their sovereignty, that they retain the right of recalling what they part with? Was it necessary to insist, like the nullifiers, that sovereignty remained whole with the sovereign people of the separate states? In 1835, at age 84, Madison composed an essay in which he pronounced, perhaps heretically, but quite sensibly, that the sovereignty of the people, quote, was in its nature divisible and was in fact divided. It, it could be divided, he pointed out, by separating off one community of sovereign people from another, making two sovereign communities, Kentucky from Virginia, Maine from Massachusetts. 
And, of course, the sovereign people had invested separate parcels of authority, of sovereign authority in the state and national governments. The doctrine that he said that sovereignty is in its nature indivisible depended on theoretical guides and technical language rather than the plain terms of the Americans' constitutional compact. In fact, he said, it was difficult to argue intelligibly concerning the compound system of government in the United States without admitting the divisibility of sovereignty between the union and the members composing the union. Nor, come to think of it, was sovereignty absolute, extending to all cases whatsoever certain rights of individuals, of conscience, for example, were, he said, beyond the legitimate reach of sovereignty, wherever vested or however viewed. The compound government of the United States, he had observed a few years earlier, is without a model and to be explained by itself, not by similitudes or analogies or, it seemed, outdated principles of political science. And so Madison continued the work of his generation, thinking through the meaning of the American Republic, rejecting what was irrelevant for the past. Finally, a year before his death, in his essay on sovereignty, he bid farewell to Jean Baudin. Okay, Alden B. Maine. If the states as governments are not, and were not sovereign, they can hardly have an immunity from prosecutions stemming, uh, stemming from their non-existent sovereignty. And insofar as the states exercise sovereign powers delegated to them by the people, their active sovereignty does not include powers that the people delegated to Congress under the Constitution. Thus, as Justice David Souter noted in his dissenting opinion, the flaw in the court's opinion and the court's appeal to federalism, the state of Maine is not sovereign with respect to the Fair Labor Standards Act. In fact, the whole concept of sovereign immunity is, as Justice Felix Frankfurter said in 1946, an anachronistic survival of monarchical privilege, since it derives from the Crown's immunity to prosecution in British courts without its consent. What place can such a concept have in a nation that rejected monarchy in 1776 and insisted that henceforth everyone, governors and governed alike, would be equally bound by the laws? To revive the concept required some very interesting, complicated arguments on the part of the court, since the Constitution does not once use the word sovereign. Nor did James Madison in a statement from the Virginia Ratifying Convention that the court cites. In discussing federal court jurisdiction, he simply noted without explanation that it is not in the power of individuals to call any state into court. The 11th Amendment, passed in 1798, which the court has interpreted as freeing states from a broad range of suits, specifically exempted states from suits brought by citizens of another state or by citizens of any foreign state, and did so, again, without using the word sovereign or immunity. The founding era, therefore, gives plenty of evidence that the states can be freed from private suits, if that's what you want to do, without resort to state sovereignty, which, however understood, has played a peculiarly nasty role in American history, one that we had every reason to think was thankfully put to rest at Appomattox Courthouse. In perpetuating the concept, or reviving, I would say, the concept of state sovereignty, the court also joins some rather bizarre bedfellows. Although it has responsibility for maintaining the Constitution, it finds natural allies among anti-federalists who oppose the Constitution's ratification in the first place. 
That, I think, is why the Court's opinion in Alden v. Maine regularly cites the ratifying conventions of Rhode Island, North Carolina, and New York. And I sometimes think the clerks that wrote it didn't know that they were all anti-federalist strongholds. <laughs> but I know it. I know you know it. <laughs> It also seems to side with 19th century states writers who disputed the court's ultimate jurisdiction in constitutional questions against those who, like Madison, argued, with one brief exception, on behalf of the court's right to decide even disputes over state and federal jurisdiction, which the nullifiers specifically denied. Of course, state sovereignty is today free from its association with nullification and secession uh, uh, the court is using it to rectify a supposed imbalance between the federal and state governments within a nation whose stability is no longer in doubt. Indeed, as this paper suggests, or talk, whatever you want to call it, state sovereignty, as the court is using it, has no relationship to state sovereignty as it was understood historically by James Madison and uh, a series of other profound constitutional commentators of the early republic. We might even characterize it as a new intellectual invention, but one that is already firmly embedded in American constitutional law. The fundamental so-called 11th Amendment immunity of states to prosecution that's posited in this week's decision depends upon earlier court decisions that extended state immunity to suits brought by uh, citizens of other states, which the 11th Amendment explicitly provides, to suits by their own citizens because of the state's so-called sovereignty, which, again, neither the Constitution nor the 11th Amendment mentions. Moreover, this week's decision undercuts Congress's ability to enforce the 14th Amendment, which moves us beyond disgruntled probation officers in the state of Maine to basic civil liberties. And if you read the decision that was in the New York Times yesterday, you may have noticed Justice Rehnquist's opinion reminded us that in City of Bern v. Flores, 1997, the court, quote, confirmed the long-settled principle that it is uh, that it has the response, pardon me, that it is the responsibility of this court, not Congress, to define the substance of constitutional guarantees. You know, as I reflect on that, I, could it, I, I ask myself, could it be that the sovereignty we're dealing with here is not really state sovereignty, that there's, there's a form of sovereignty that's understandable in traditional terms, that is an authority beyond which there is no appeal, uh, that's being invested not in the states, uh, but in the court. Uh, and if so, we may be in a situation where the rebalancing of power between the states and the nation is less pressing uh, than a rebalancing of power among uh, the legislative, judicial, and the executive. I have to say, though, that the court has one card in its uh, in its hand that it, it you know I can't take it away from it. Uh, they're right. In the 81st Federalist Paper, Alexander Hamilton said that under the new Constitution, states would not lose lose the immunity from suits by individuals that they enjoyed as one of the attributes of sovereignty. <laughs> But it is it's really curious, because far from being a general supporter of state power, Hamilton genuinely favored a consolidated government and would have preferred to destroy the states altogether, except perhaps, perhaps as administrative units of the nation. He was not, it seems, so careful in what he said in his desperate effort to get uh, New York to ratify the Constitution, which was the purpose of the Federalist Papers. Uh, uh, it, it wasn't an owner's manual like the thing in your glove compartment with the new car. Uh, and clearly he was uh, nowhere so consistent in his arguments as was his colleague James Madison. On the other hand, in conclusion, say maybe we need Hamilton. Maybe if he didn't exist, we'd have to invent him. Uh, he makes interpreting the past a bit less cut and dried. Truth in history, even as presented in this paper, is almost always open to dispute, which might 
make its use in deciding constitutional issues more difficult. But it is why history is so endlessly fascinating. Thank you. All right. I'm told two questions, you and you. Of the Internet on sovereignty, both nationally and internationally. I pass. Two more. I don't know. That's big. I can't. Sir. I couldn't begin to answer it. I could say it's not my field. What would Madison say today about our latest presidential election and the Supreme Court stopping uniform standards in recounting the votes of the people of Florida? I would not ever put myself in the position that one of the people who testified before the House Judiciary Committee in the impeachment proceedings did, of being able to hear, as you know, in a seance, the voice of Madison on various things. But, you know, I have to say in reflecting this, it did strike me that the court is asserting this extraordinary range of powers and undercutting congressional power at a time where its partisan character is very pronounced. It's very difficult to think of this without some analogy to the court whose authority Madison disputed in the 1790s, which was a Federalist court. Of course, the judges today behave better, none of these, you know, wild harangues. I guess if I'm going to be concerned, I can't say what Madison says. I say there's some parallel in the problems that we confront and that he confronted at that point, although our problem isn't quite so extreme, although we may be getting there. Really, once you start cutting at equal protection of the law under the 14th Amendment and at Congress's right, as the fifth section of the 14th Amendment says, to pass laws to implement those rights, you have to ask where they're going next. Right? Okay. Considering provisions of the Constitution like diversity jurisdiction, privileges and immunities, and the anti-out-of-state discrimination clauses of the Commerce Clause, do you think that maybe the Constitution is much more concerned with protecting states from out-of-state people and not states from their own people? And maybe the 11th Amendment doesn't cover that state being sued by one of its own people simply because it was so implied in the rest of the Constitution that the federal government wouldn't be dealing with that. I find the Court's arguments in extending the interpretation of the 14th Amendment, to use plain language, flaky in the extreme. Actually, you know, it's very nice. We can all do this if we're interested, thanks to the Internet. We all become legal experts. Findlaw.com, it says for legal professionals, but they don't ask for your credentials before they give you what you want. This new interpretive tendency, as I understand it, goes back to Hans v. Louisiana in 1890. And then there are a whole series of much more recent interpretations that have expanded this. But how could they do it? All the 11th Amendment says is they can't be sued by citizens of other states. They say they must have meant their own citizens as well. That's a function of their sovereignty. Well, you know, they've just read a tremendous amount of meaning. And then what the Court does is to make an assertion like the sovereignty the states had before the ratification of the Constitution, which is highly problematical historically, as I tried to say. They say it, and then in the next case, they cite the flaky statement from the historically questionable statement from a previous case as if they're having said it, it's an established truth. So you get this bizarre building of unsubstantiated arguments, you know, on and on. I think it's highly questionable. I question it. We all have a right to question it. It's a free country. Yeah. 
commerce without taxation. I don't, I'm not sure I follow you. <laughs> That's a problem, right? <laughs> yeah. See, repeat it again, and maybe we'll all get it this time. <laughs> In very simple terms, we talked about taxation without representation as a political constitutional process. We are emerging to a situation where you're going to have global and national commerce without the ability of the states to deal with taxation, particularly on sales tax. Yeah. And this is a big issue on the Conference of Governors every okay. single time they get together. So you're talking about exchanges, for example, via the Internet or with the global economy and in and general. How do you reconcile the rights of, of – well, we were, there is a sovereign state. We talk about sovereigns in the international world without an awful lot of difficulty. We know what it means. A sovereign state is under no higher authority. Uh, but the question is how the rights of sovereign states can be recognized in a global economy. And I don't know. It's already being recognized by bypassing taxation. Okay. Well, I want to ask you all to uh, join me in thanking Pauline for this wonderful paper. And I want to call the session to a halt because we need to give you a break so that we can begin exactly at 4 o'clock with the summary panel. We'll expect you all back in your seats then.